0: Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Money Talk. I'm Neil Kreisel and Diane Duvernay are your hosts every week right here on AM 1290, FM 96.9 and streaming at AM 1290 KZSB. We're repeated at 11 and Saturdays at 6. We're brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, whose highly trained and experienced team takes great pride in helping people with home financing, offering competitive rates and a wide array of loan programs. American Riviera Bank, smart banking for smart people in Santa Barbara at Figueroa and Anacapa Streets and in Montecito's Upper Village. And Alainton Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm in Santa Barbara, providing its clients with the personal care and attention of a small independent firm coupled with the vast resources of a major financial institution.
1: Happy Monday, Neil.
0: Well, happy Monday. Uh, the only problem is uh, the stock market's down, the world's coming to an end. But other than that, um, everything's great.
1: Well, it's a beautiful day. So ho- hopefully you can find some, some joy in that. So we have with us again, a repeat guest. We are thrilled to welcome back Miguel Delgado. And I still will butcher your last name, Miguel. Hello, <laughs> PhD, Director of the Global Economic Research um, Department at CSUCI. Thanks so much, Miguel, for being with us today.
2: Thank you for having me back.
0: So um, the first two articles we have today um, are sort of ironic uh and uh they are in a sense uh, uh, somewhat about uh the, the war in ukraine the first was in today's new york times and this is something that could be in the onion the the um uh f- fun uh, That's news yeah uh It's really quite a a story. It was the front page of the financial section, and it's uh, entitled, War Prompts a Pitch for Socially Responsible Military Stocks. Uh, Citicorp argues that uh, the height of social responsibility at this moment requires putting your money into the stocks of companies that make weapons, The president of the Green Century Funds, which was founded by nonprofit groups, including the California Public Interest Research Group, uh, said this is absurd. It feels very opportunistic and and shallow. Uh, uh, Those that argue that weapons belong in a sustainable portfolio are capitalizing on this horrific attack. Um, Citicorp argues that essentially it boils down to this, without strong militaries, capable of defending the values of liberal democracies and creating a deterrent against geopolitical adversaries, there can't be much progress on other pressing global issues. Really quite a standing uh, a, a, a gutsy gutsy uh, attempt to get on the the I think to get on the sustainable uh, bandwagon by saying uh, it makes sense to buy military, companies.
1: Yeah, I have to say, you know, socially responsible, which was the predecessor to the um what we call it now ESG portfolios were a little more you could pick and choose, right? So if you didn't want to have tobacco in your in your portfolio, there'd be a screen for that or alcohol or weapons. To say that weapons now are socially responsible seems a little, a little off mark and opportunistic given what's going on in, in the world right now. But as for what social socially responsible investing is, it really differs between everybody's own definition of what you're willing to accept in your portfolio.
0: Uh, when I was on Wall Street in the 70s, when the uh, Three Mile Island uh, reactor began to implode, I was by... Just chance down in the trading room. And I heard a trader scream out, uh, Where's Hershey, Pennsylvania? Is it near the reactor? Because he wanted to short Hershey stock as a way of quote unquote playing uh, the possible nuclear catastrophe. And uh, in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, there's an article that, um, you know, sort of Reminds me of that of that story. Uh, Investors are starting to buy Ukrainian and Russian bonds because of their cheap price, and um, uh, uh, the betting is that government uh, that uh, Ukraine will likely remain independent for some time after the war, and given the low price of the bonds, uh, it makes sense to possibly begin speculating. And, you know, it's just, I mean, I'm not saying that th- this article, which talks about those investors, those hedge funds that are thinking about buying Ukrainian bonds, and in some cases, Russian bonds uh, are evil or, or or wrong, but it just seems that, you know, you have people in power with money, and all they can think about during this catastrophe is at what point can we go ahead and buy these bonds? Because when the war is over, we'll be able to make a few bucks.
1: And what's funny about that or, or sad is that most investors, the individual investors at this point, you know, I'm getting phone calls from people saying, can you ensure that there is no exposure to Russia in my portfolio? How can we make sure that we're not a, we're not a part of giving Russia more money than, or, or giving Russia any investment money?
0: Um, the, the next article is not really an article; it's just a, a, a little corp in the Wall Street Journal. And I have to, after I give it, give the audience the the article, ask you whether or not I'm interpreting it correctly. Uh, but it, the article says that if you claim Social Security at 62, um, you're receiving permanently reduced benefits. Um, but there is a way around that, uh, and that is that. Uh, you can uh, stop your payments for one full year and that after 70 you you after you stop it for one full year your benefits will increase increase by eight percent and um it sounds like a good way to make eight percent interest uh, it, am i misinterpreting this is that possible if you stop your pay if you stop receiving social security for one year after you've taken it you can restart it the following year and get an eight percent increase, or stop it for five years and get eight percent each year for the time you've deferred it.
1: I believe you I believe that is correct that you when when you stop it, you do get accrued benefit. But here's the thing with that: is that why would you take it at 62, anyways? You're better off to wait till full retirement age, if not 70, to max out that benefit. There did used to be a loophole where if you had a had spouses one would take it and the other would it, you can do a spousal benefit and let your your amount um you know grow by that 8% until the second spouse reaches age 70 but you know it it seems like it's something that you would want to meet with somebody and have your numbers run through a social security maximizer program
0: there is such a thing as a social security there is such maximizer a thing as- Yes, there's a little bit of everything. Um, Next article is entitled, You Quit Your Job, But You Still Need a Retirement Plan. And one of the um, things that people who are taking er very early retirement should consider is that while they still can do um, a uh, 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 a, uh, uh, retirement plan, they're not going to be able to do a 401k plan with the ability to get money from their company free. That is, uh, the matching part of a 401k plan is really a, a, one of the great ways to, to, to make money. Uh, also, um, the idea that um, you leave work and then you are going to contribute to your own uh, IRA as opposed to getting money from a 401k presumes that you'll have the money to do that. And, you know, many people are Quitting their jobs presumably because they're going to start their own business, but when you start your own business, you don't really have much excess cash. And 401k plans are you know, automatic withdrawals, and so the whole idea here is maybe you can survive without a job, but uh, you may not be able to really have a robust retirement plan.
1: Well, that that's exactly what you t- what I tell people when they start talking about retirement early. It's a double whammy to your overall net worth and portfolio because it's twofold you're no longer putting money in and you're not allowing the monies that you have put in to grow and have that compounding interest effect what's happening is you have you're then withdrawing to live on those dollars and so as this wave of resignation has happened and people have started either their own business or or in some other fashion making money you know Not funding any sort of retirement plan is really detrimental to being able to retire in the lifestyle that you've grown accustomed to in your working years.
0: Uh, You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back.
3: The Santa Barbara Neighborhood Clinics provide high-quality, comprehensive, affordable health care to all people, regardless of their ability to pay. Here's Dr. Charles Fenzi.
0: So we're a nonprofit organization in Santa Barbara that is targeted folks who live at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. People who either have no coverage whatsoever, 30% of our patients have no coverage, or people
2: who have very low coverage or minimal coverage. We have about 32,000 people that we're taking care of in the community. I think the proudest thing that I have, not I, we have managed to assemble an amazing team of professionals to lead this group. So my job really is to sort of help with the navigation, help clear out the debris in front of the road to allow people to do their very best work.
3: To learn more about the Santa Barbara Neighborhood Clinics, go to sbclinics.org or call 844-594-0343.
0: Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Cornerstone Home Lending, since 1988, a mortgage banker and direct lender that believes in providing in-depth loan consulting to its customers in a personalized and honest manner.
1: And we can be reached at 805-564-1290, or you could email us at moneytalk1290 at gmail.com. And if you're just joining us, we have on the show again for the fourth time, Miguel Delgado- El Seta, who is a PhD and director of the Global Economic Research Department at Channel, at Cal State University, Channel Islands. Thanks so much for being with us, Miguel.
2: Thank you, Diana.
1: So what's new with you? You know, what's been going on?
2: Well, I think since the last time we talked, um, we're back on campus, you know, which is great. Um, I think the last time we talked, we had, we were maybe just starting this whole working from home thing, right? So, yes, I think you're um, right, excited to be back on campus, excited to be back in the classroom. You know, we we've made great, great advances with technology, but I still enjoy, you know, the contact with the with the students and being in the classroom teaching rather than teaching from my home uh, behind the screen. You know, so um, it's and great. how are the
1: students um, acclimating back into in-person instruction?
2: You know, I get the sense that a lot of our students like being back on campus. Um, I know there, there have been universities where a lot of people didn't want to return right away. I get the sense that a lot of ours, um, they were excited to be back on campus, um, which is great. You know, the, I don't think the campus is nearly as full as we used to be. Um, I, I know we've kept some stuff online, but uh, I look forward to kind of slowly but surely getting back to where we used to be, you know, to a vibrant campus with students all the time. So
1: oh, perfect. So before we dig in, remind us again how you got to Santa Barbara and your background.
2: Sure. So I uh I did my master's in econ at UCSB, and that's sort of what brought me there. I was living in California and uh I applied to a program at the time it was very convenient. It was a one-year master's program, and I didn't see myself uh in a teaching role. You know, I, I just wanted to get an advanced degree and get to work. And so uh, compared to other programs that I had looked at, this was like, just come do it in a year and you'll get to work. And of course, Santa Barbara is beautiful. So it was an easy choice to make. And then I, you know, I, I found a job in town. Um, I stayed there for a while. Then I went back to school uh, to do my PhD at, at UCSB and I stuck around and I was very, very fortunate to find work uh, somewhat nearby. Right. I mean, uh, it's not that far away. It's an hour from Santa Barbara. So, uh, Oh,
1: great.
2: Very lucky.
0: It's an hour from Santa Barbara at two in the morning, but there are, there is construction. If you, I don't know if you noticed it in, uh, in Summerland, the Carpentaria.
2: Right, right. Not just bad, but you know, I, I'm an early riser. So um, that works pretty well.
1: <laughs> that, that That's funny. Well, yes, hopefully one day that construction will go away and it will go back to being, you know, 50 minutes, who knows. So so tell us, you know, with all that that's going on in the world with the conflict or I guess we're now calling it a war between, you know, Russia invading Ukraine, how will um, the Russian sanctions affect our economy here at home, the U.S. economy?
2: You know, I I expect that the biggest um, impact is going to be through oil prices. And, you know, there, there is now discussion about seriously considering um, cutting exports right from from Russia or cutting, cutting imports of oil uh, from Russia and, and and you know unfortunately uh, you expect that people react to sanctions right in a sort of rational way and uh, in the case of Putin what you see is more of a uh, he increasingly has less to lose and so he's willing to go even more all in right? And so he could decide that at some point, uh, they don't want to export the oil at all. So it's not even a question of whether we uh, cut back on importing oil. It's um, he could decide not to export it. And we're already, you know, we're already feeling the squeeze at the pump, right? And if that gets worse, um, I think that's where we're going to see a lot of pain, right? Absolutely.
1: And I was just having a a conversation at lunch today about that. And the fact that, you know, it takes some time to get oil back online here in the U S and the person I was speaking with um, responded with, well, one of our oil rigs here in the channel you know, in the, in the channel uh, Santa Barbara channel, you know, to turn one of those on is actually a snap of the fingers. And one of those oil platforms could supply a quarter of the state of California's oil supply. Now, it seems as if I know, I know the political will no one really wants no one really wants oil drilling off of our coast however in a short term crisis situation which we seem to be finding ourselves in don't you think that would make economic sense
2: Uh I I think so I mean I I think it would be beneficial to um crank up production uh, to the extent that we can and not not only us right I mean this is a this is a global issue so A lot of what happens next is going to depend not only on what we do but what uh, other oil producing countries decide to do as well right but certainly i think that if there's a will to increase production uh, both domestically and and abroad uh, that would be great you know uh, we are in a situation that is i I think you know calls for a stronger measure
1: yeah you know i i saw in the news that we're talking now with um, venezuela about getting more oil and I can't help but to think, you know, going from one dictator to another might not be exactly the the geopolitical uh, message we want to send to the world. But, you know, who am I?
0: (laughs) You know, but, uh, you know, when you look at oil, though, it's just part of the whole inflationary spiral. And, um, you know, the the, the irony is that to the extent that this war causes economic disruption uh, and even more uh, difficulties companies have in uh, in producing because of the supply chain problem, could you have an offset to inflation because economic growth slows? Uh, so the irony is you could actually, by hiring having higher, higher uh, energy costs, you could actually begin to cut back on inflation.
2: I mean, I suppose if it gets to a point where producing just gets so expensive, right, that uh, people won't buy your products. But I, I think... I think it's hard to imagine that happening right i mean uh what we tend to see is costs go higher and people uh, negotiate higher wages so that they can afford the things right um and so i mean i think to what you're talking about neil if you think about what the fed generally tries to do right it's, they try to increase rates in essence to kind of slow down the economy um, I just never thought of it as sort of being slowed down by prices themselves, right? Because if those prices start slowing slowing the economy down and those prices start dropping, then those companies would jump back in into production, right? So it's hard to imagine that kind of that continuing. Uh, so it has to be something else that stops inflation, I think.
1: So now, can you share with us a little bit about what you see going on in the supply chain? Because up until this point, or I should say January, the Fed kept telling us that you know, really, we didn't have inflation in the economy. It was much more supply or lack of supply chain driven. So it was more transitory inflation. And then come January of this year, we, we started down the path of, you know, high inflation. You know, I think the January number came out at 7%. So what now has really changed in that supply chain? Because I still go to the grocery store and sometimes I'm unable to find the products that I want to buy.
2: Sure. And, you know, um I think... I think we're heading in the right direction in that regard. I just think that it takes time, right? Um, and and I think the conflict in Ukraine is not going to help uh, because it's going to make things more expensive to do. Um, I think in terms of supply chain itself, um, I'd imagine that we're sort of heading in the right direction. It's just that it's not instantaneous, right? Uh, y- you ramp up production to, to meet demand. Um, it, it takes some time for that to adjust. I think we're we're adjusting. Um, and so I do expect that, that that part of the equation is getting better, right? But when you think about, I mean, when I think about inflation, I'm thinking about uh, some of it, yeah, it's it's temporary uh, from the supply chain stuff that I think is getting better. Now we're, we're gonna have these shocks on the price of oil, right? That's sort of out of control. And then there's the inflation that we kind of generate ourselves by pumping money into the economy, like there's no tomorrow, right? And, and some of that, um, I think it's going to get better. I I think the Fed will rightfully start uh, raising rates a little bit. And I know that that's uh, some people think it's bad time precisely because we're still not doing so great in in many ways. Um, But I've held uh, the view long that the Fed was too slow in the past to raise rates. And then we ended up in a situation that was less than ideal. Right. And so I I think I I hope that they do that. They don't think that, you know, don't confuse the, the shocks from oil which is something that the Fed should have to handle, right? I think they should kind of stay the course on slowing the economy down a little bit by raising rates and hopefully slowing down that inflation, that part of the inflation, right? I mean, the the shock part from the price of oil, I think there's there's little that is in our control.
0: You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back.
3: When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service, every day, every way. You can bank on us.
2: Bank on us. Bank
3: on us. American Riviera Bank. Bank on better.
0: Now you can enjoy studio quality sound on your devices from the station that talks about Santa Barbara any time of the day or night, and from just about any place on the planet. Just say, "Hey Alexa, play KZSB AM 1290" when you're at home, or bookmark am1290kzsb.com on your Apple or Android devices, and you've got streaming studio quality sound anytime, any place from the Santa Barbara News Press Radio Station. Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence. So you know, before the break, Miguel, you know there was you yeah, go ahead.
1: Before the break, we were talking about the supply chain, and you you were talking about the Fed raising. I think the Fed Chair Jerome Powell came out and said you know, a quarter point is what they were anticipating doing in this March meeting. However, before that, you know, it sounded like they were leaking out a half a point to get the market, you know, prepared for a half a point raise. Do you think, in fact, if the Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine, we would have done a half a point versus the quarter point that it seems as if we'll see this month?
2: I think so. Uh, You know, I I think uh, they probably got a little bit spooked thinking about what's going to happen next. And, um and they just figured, let's not be as aggressive. So I think if this hadn't happened, uh, they probably would have raised a little bit more, which I think would have been appropriate. You know, uh, as I was mentioning before, um, I've often thought that um, they held rates way too low for way too long. Uh,
1: and- yeah, <laughs> what is in essence done is basically taken a tool out of their tool belt to curb this inflation because rates are so
2: low. Right. Right. And, and, you know, I guess more importantly, when you when you fall into a recession, um, you want to have that kind of room to lower the rate. Right. And mm-hmm. if you don't do that in, in advance, then you're kind of left without the tool when you actually need it the most. And so, um, you know, back in like 16, 17, I thought, you know, the economy was doing OK. Why don't you just raise the rates a little bit? I, I think, you know, there's room on profits on profit margins to accommodate that. And yes, I mean, some people won't be happy about it. But uh, some other people would be very happy about it, right? I mean, like in my stage, uh, I'm glad that rates are low, right? Because uh, this is a stage in which I probably borrow more than I save. But for people that are closer to kind of uh, finishing their careers and so on, saving is important, right? And the rates are so low that you're not getting any returns on on sort of safe investments, right? Uh, you have to take a little bit more risk.
0: So it, uh, ever since Milton Friedman and the Chicago School um, became the basically dominant theory about money supply and inflation, uh, there's really been no argument. And then about about whether they were right or wrong. And then uh, several years ago, people started talking about new monetary theory. And in the last two months, both sides seem to be saying that they prove their point this year. Uh, there's an argument, they both have the same argument with different conclusions. What do you, What do you make of all that?
2: So, I mean, my my understanding of uh, uh new monetary theory uh is more about sort of the applicability, right? I, I think there is there is an agreement that the risk that exists is inflation, right? Uh because basically what they suggest is you can print money, right? You can print all the money that you need. So you don't need to worry about if you're a government, you don't need to worry about borrowing. Uh you actually don't even need to worry about taxes, right? Because if you need money, you print it. Right, which of course in our case, our Fed is a separate entity from the government, right? They, they work independently. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that they don't coordinate. And, and I think we've seen we've seen that in recent years. Um, and, and the one thing that I think, you know, new monetary theorists would say is again, the risk is inflation. And I think we're starting to see that, right? I think we've been very loose in sort of printing money uh, the Fed has kept the rates very, very low and how did they do that by putting more money out there, right? And so um, I think we're finally seeing that catch up, right? Uh, before this whole oil thing, before this whole Ukraine thing, um, we were already seeing inflation kind of get wild, right? And so to me, what was surprising is how long it took, right? I mean, we started pumping more money into the economy like back in 08 or 09 with the Great Recession. That's when we started you know, quantitative easing, we started doing all this other stuff to put more money out there. And um, for some reason, inflation didn't pick up, but now it's sort of, you know, it's, it's like, it's almost like catching up now, right? And since we kind of stopped our production uh, for a while, uh, I think that helped to catch up even more, right? Because now you have even more dollars spending less output uh, for less output that is out there. And so um, that's, that's the one thing that is probably uh, a true conclusion uh, now, does that mean that new monetary theorists are correct in, in what we should do? I don't think so. They are correct in that there is a risk of inflation and we're seeing the effect of it. Um, but I don't believe that it would be responsible to say uh, countries that have their own currency can just go out there and print money as they need to because what it creates is inflation. And we've seen, you know, we've been fortunate that we haven't had like crazy hyperinflations, but you see like the cases of like Argentina, right, where uh, they have their own currency, they they Sometimes peg it to the dollar, but other times they just do whatever they want with it. And um, I don't think I would want to be an Argentina, right?
1: Yeah, because the dollar is what the global currency is, it, we actually have a, a significant advantage because that $8 trillion that we plow that we plowed into the market through July of last year, you know, that is a lot of money. That's like 35% of our overall economy. And you're exactly right that we've been, we still had slopping around in the economy, all the stimulus from the great recession. And so at what point do you see, it? it is inflation what's going to suck this, all these extra dollars out of the economy? Or, or where, how do you see it playing out?
2: Yeah, so I mean, you know, I don't imagine that we're gonna have deflation and, and you often, and you don't want deflation, right? I mean, deflation, for an economy like ours is probably much worse than high inflation, I think. Um, but it's the kind of thing that, you know, it won't get reversed. So, I mean, I think inflation is gonna slow down. Uh, you know, there's a lot of expectations that will go into this, and I think we'll get there. We've, we've had it before, right? We've had high inflation before and we've gotten through it. But basically what you're having is a changing of levels, right, everything is getting more expensive and it's never gonna get cheaper. Now, as, as long as our wages can catch up with that, right? And, and inflation, Usually means that both wages and prices are rising. As long as that happens, uh, all that's going to happen is that we'll get used to, you know, hot dogs costing ten dollars instead of, uh, you know, a few dollars. Um, but we'll also make more money, right? And so I, I do hope that that we get it to slow down. And all we're, all that's going to happen is that we will, we will have had sort of a change in levels to higher prices, right? Uh, higher prices with low inflation is not bad. And so we can get back there.
0: But one of the ironies, and I think one of the things that new monetary theory advocates uh, uh, like to like to talk about, is that with all of the increased spending, interest rates didn't go up. And uh, as long as you have a fiat currency that people believe in, uh, why not borrow? If you can borrow at essentially no percent, uh, why not uh, stimulate the economy? And to the extent that wages go up, you're all is good. So, you know, the, the risk would be that you lose your fiat currency status. But so far, there's no one available to, so, other than China. And that's very long term that could take its place.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, I guess the risk is that at some point, people won't lend us at that rate, right? And so if it gets to a point where they don't think we have the capacity to pay, um then then we will be seen as a as a riskier creditor, right? And so at that point the the lending stops, right? And again, you can you can print money instead. Um, but that's gonna cause inflation.
0: Yeah. That's right? just interesting to look at what happened to the dollar in the last week. Uh the the idea that we may be under some pressure in terms of dollar is just gone away i mean people are looking for any safety and and the dollar seems to be the the only safe haven so so far uh, so good you're listening to money talk on am 1290 and fm 96.9 and we'll be right back
1: Please visit arlingtonfinancialadvisors.com or call me, Diane Duva, at 805
5: Hi, I'm Danica Patrick and proud aunt. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing. But not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. One in six. That little girl sitting alone at the playground, she can't play like the other kids. She doesn't have the energy because she's hungry. School lunch will be her only meal today. It breaks my heart that this is the reality in our country, but it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. This food is then provided to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about using your imagination, learning, and having fun. These children shouldn't have to miss out on simply being a kid because they're hungry. To find out how you can help end childhood hunger in your community, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
0: Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by American Riviera Bank, making your life easier with cutting-edge technology, mobile deposits, free use of every ATM machine in the country, and a level of service other banks could only dream about.
1: So, Miguel, when you you look at um, inflation, what do you see as, you know, your outlook for inflation going forward? Do you think that we're going to stay at these high, you know, at the last 12 months inflation numbers? Do you think it's going to go higher you know, are we looking at
2: 1978 again? I, I doubt it. I mean, I, I think it's gonna slow down. I I do, I ha, I am hopeful about the Fed, you know, cutting rate, I mean, increasing rates and that that will slow things down. Um, again, a lot of it is gonna depend on what happens with oil, uh, but those, the, the oil side of thing, I think will be very transitory. I think, you know, we will adjust if, if we end up saying nobody's buying oil from Russia and they're a large producer, uh, we'll make the adjustments for that. And so I do think we'll we'll have some high inflation maybe for another year or so, but I, I expect that it's going to start slowing down. And and I hope that we get back to, you know, kind of normal 2% target, right? So So part of it is, you know, the Fed sort of, we had low inflation for so long that the Fed kind of changed their stance and it was like no longer targeting 2%. It was like, we'll let it go higher for a while so that on average, on a longer view, it will be about 2%, right? And um, we're probably kind of above the mark now with, with the rates that we've been seeing, uh, sort of on a long-term average. But I think that's that's still gonna be the goal, right? And so I, I think they're gonna do what they can do to get inflation to slow down.
1: Although, do you think it's interesting because the government, when they quote inflation numbers, so like when social security gets a increase, like this past year, they got a 5.9% increase um, on their social, on social security recipients. Paychecks. Um, you know, when the government quotes inflation, they usually do it without including food and energy. And so, perhaps with the Fed rate, you know, let's say the Fed hikes rates the next three times they meet. So we're you know 75 basis points of ahead of where we are today. And then the government quotes inflation a- excluding energy and food, which would mean these huge, highly e- expensive oil prices. You know, could it be that we're in this weird quagmire where, you know, what Americans are paying, which I always say, you know, what people pay are basically our inflation is food and energy. But when the government quotes it, they put it without it, that it could be this, um, you know, kind of weird uh, place that we find ourselves.
2: Um, could be. I, I mean, I think they're they're still fairly tightly linked. Right. I mean, certainly. Um, uh, energy goes into everything we do, right? And so when energy costs are higher, uh, that translates into higher costs and other things. And maybe it takes a little a little bit of time for that to kind of fully transpire, but it's still there, right? Uh, but I, I know they kind of take those out because they're so volatile, right? And if you look at sort of the price of oil, it kind of goes all up and down all the time, right? And so they, they try to kind of estimate something that is more uh, stable, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I mean
1: right. between the open and the eight o'clock hour, the barrel of oil went from like 130 to
2: 115.
1: You right, know, right. A $15 a barrel swing in two hours.
2: And So it could very well be that you know the, the inflation quoted will be substantially lower than than once we include yeah, you know, uh heating and all that other stuff. But um but again, they're not they're not entirely detached, right? Uh because these things enter everything with you.
0: You, you have, obviously, a, a syllabus and a, a teaching plan. Uh, how much of uh, that plan these days gets interrupted by students asking current event questions?
2: Um, it varies. You know, right now, uh, it, it varies even for me quite a bit. I, I'm working with some students that are seniors, uh, and, you know, we're, we're doing kind of more open courses in which we're working on, on different things. And so there's a much more of a free flow about discussing sort of current events there. Um, I'm teaching on the other end, principles courses and uh, you occasionally get the very eager student who wants to know something about what's something that's happening, but most of them are just kind of trying to absorb, uh, their first introduction to economics. Right. And so a lot of it is, I think, uh, for some they probably don't think I know much about this stuff. <laughs> they, they think okay. I only know what's on the syllabus and then, uh, you know, they're just trying to survive their first encounter with economics. I think.
4: So we
1: were talking briefly off-air about real estate, and you know, where as all of us living here in the Central Coast, we've all seen real estate, you know, really, uh, you know, balloon almost, uh, you know, really balloon here and across the country. The median home price has increased significantly. Now. Do you think that, um, in, what what effect do you think higher interest rates will have on the real estate market, if any?
2: So I think it will slow it down a little bit. I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, it's, I think for most of us who, you know, have a mortgage, um, it's our mortgage payments that determine what we can afford, right? And so you, you're going to have a little bit of of exchange there in that uh, if interest rates are higher, then you can afford less, right? In terms of a, of the overall price. And uh, that may put some pressure on homes kind of going, you know, when they don't move as quickly because people can't get loans as easily or as, uh, as favorably, um, there would be some adjustments there, I think. And so now I don't expect that we're gonna have anything similar to what we had back in the Great Recession. I don't think we're gonna have some sort of crash. I think uh, home prices will probably just stop growing so quickly, you know? Uh, which, which I hope is the case. I mean, I don't think anyone wants to see a crash like the one we had before. Um, so, that's my sense: is that as as the rates get a little bit tighter, um, some of the kind of wild uh, buying is going to slow down a little bit.
1: And then to switch gears a little on real estate is for you know those real estate owners that are renting their properties throughout the pandemic. Some of them really got in, into our, a hard place with the you know rent moratorium. And now we have many places, you know, you know City, Santa Barbara City Council is talking about rent control. What effect do you think that's going to have? And um, what do you think that's, that's going to do to the economy to have rent control in place?
2: Well, I, I mean, there are things that will happen both in the short run and the long run, right? So when you, when you impose rent controls, when you impose, when you impose any kind of price control, I think you create a lot of distortions that are undesirable. Um, you know, we, we tend to think that pricing is basically the signaling, right? We use prices to signal what things are worth. And so when you control those things, you're basically uh, sort of affecting that signal, right? Um, what does it do in the short run? Uh, in the short run, you may have things like, you know, you have to find a, a new way of allocating homes, right? So when you, have, when you have units that are rent controlled, for starters, you're going to have people not moving out, Right because they have the benefit of being in a unit that is controlled. And then you probably have more people wanting to rent than there is apartments out there, right? Um, and so again, at that, at that point you ask yourself, how do, I, how do I allocate, right? How do I decide who gets this rental? Because I used to be able to do it with prices. You know, if I had the people interested in, in my property, the one who pays the most gets it, right? And now that doesn't work, right? Um, so it creates all sorts of kind of weird incentives and then in the long run, um, if I know that I can rent my unit, regardless of what it looks like, because it's rent controlled, then what incentive do I have to keep it up? What incentive do I have to be attentive to tenant needs and make repairs and so on? If I know that there's a line at the door of people that want to rent my unit, um, I don't even need to paint it when people move out. Uh, I can just give it to the next person, right? And, and I'll get that rent control amount. So in the long run, it creates this incentives to build new and to maintain uh your properties so um i think most economists would agree that any kind of control on prices is uh is not desirable
0: yeah and you and you left out what i think is the most dangerous part of rent control is you stop the uh, supply of new construction uh, because people aren't going to want to allocate resources and pay uh, to build something that they're not sure of the whether or not the pricing will be available to them. And in places right. that have rent control, you've seen, you know, basically in terms of housing, construction just stop cold.
2: Right. I, I think, you know, people that advocate for rent control have gotten smarter in some ways. I, I know that there are schemes where, for example, they exclude uh, housing that is relatively new. From the control, right, and so they're basically if you have apartments that are more than I don't know, fifteen to twenty years old, then those would be controlled. But if you have apartments that are um, newer, you can keep renting those out at whatever market rate, right? And, and and I think that kind of tries to get exactly at that, right, at the idea that um, it disincentivizes new construction. But if if you know that you can profit from it for fifteen to twenty years, then maybe you want. Um, but I, I don't, I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that that's working well.
0: Uh, You're listening to Money Talk on AM 1290 and FM 96.9, and we'll be right back with our final segment.
3: When a bank is owned by the community and invests in the community, it answers to a different call. It's personal. It's driven by your needs, not ours. Welcome to American Riviera Bank, based right here in Santa Barbara with branches in Montecito and Goleta. Our customers know us for personal service, every day, every way. You can bank on us.
2: Bank on us. Bank
3: on us! American Riviera Bank. Bank on better. During these tough financial times, the call for assistance from the Food Bank of Santa Barbara County has never been greater. Currently serving one in every four residents, the Food Bank must now turn to the community to ask for help. Thanks to bulk buying and a newly coordinated regional effort, the Food Bank can turn each dollar donated into $17 worth of healthy food to give to those in need. To donate or more information on Food Bank programs and services, go to foodbanksbc.org or call 967-5741.
0: Welcome back to Money Talk, brought to you by Arlington Financial Advisors, a leading wealth management firm founded on providing thoughtful, objective, and comprehensive financial guidance for families and entities who are seeking long-term financial confidence.
1: So Miguel, in the you know here we are in the last segment, and we haven't even asked about you know the Institute for Global Economic Studies. So tell us about it.
2: So I took this institute over a few years ago, um, and my goal was to make it a more hands-on experience for the students, um, and that's what we worked on. You know, I I do a lot of sort of housing-related stuff, community-based, and so we've we've gotten to present some work with students uh, on. Sort of uh, market and housing conditions in ventura county which is really exciting you know to get the students out there um, and you know the last couple of years was kind of tough with the pandemic uh having to work remotely the, a lot of what i enjoy doing there is that i like to sit with students and work on stuff right like we work with data and we, we kind of like walk them through how i will do some things and Again, we have the technology to, to do a lot of that remotely now, but it's not the same to me, you know, like it's sitting there with the students and they kind of seeing as I'm, as I'm thinking about something and, and working on some stuff. So I'm, I'm happy that we're back. We're working on some cool projects. Um, we're we're actually working on some stuff for our provost here at CI. Um, he's interested in looking at some uh, market data on, uh, on jobs, you know, what jobs are available. And as we kind of think about where is the university heading? What kind of programs do we need to offer our students? Um, he asked us to look at. We we acquired a data source that collects uh, advertisements. Uh, they have data on advertisements for jobs uh, all over the country, and so you can narrow down to the county level. You can look at the state level and so on. And you can look at you know what are the jobs that are on demand, uh, how much do they offer to pay, and so on. So we're doing some work with the students there to analyze the data, which is great. You know. It's it's fun to see the students do stuff that um, a I think is the kind of work they will do when they leave and they get jobs and and that they feel like they're contributing you know it's not just a, a class project it's not just some something that they're going to present for ten minutes in front of their classmates and then be done with it right it's something that uh, we met with the provost and he's like here's what I want to understand here's here are the things I want you to do and so we're actually you know working on, on projects that have some impact for the university which is great.
0: So what are the jobs that are the most uh, likely to uh, find a, a, a use for a CI graduate? What are the most attractive openings?
2: So, so we're looking at, at essentially sort of new programs that they want to offer. And, you know, I don't know all of it at, at the top of my head. I was looking at some stats earlier today, but like actuarial science, sciences is something that is, is very well paid and sought after. I know it's also very difficult. I've heard from people that um, the math involved is just very, very challenging. Um, but so there are a number of jobs. Uh, I think one of the issues for us is that a lot of our students like to be local. And so the question is, do we find enough jobs in Ventura County that fit the things that we're offering, right? I think once our students are willing to go a little bit farther, if they're willing to commute out to Los Angeles or if they're willing to move uh, out of the state, um, the opportunities they can find uh, are much wider in all sorts of fields, right?
1: So, you know, what is your vision for the future for the Institute and has it changed since, you know, now that you've been at the he- head of it for, for a few years now?
2: Um, I think the goal is still the same, right? It's to, to actually expose students to the kind of work that I think they will do professionally the day that they leave. And I mostly work with sort of junior senior students so they're kind of just getting to that point where they're ready to look for a job. And um, and I hope that we'll keep doing that. I mean, we've, we've built some partnerships in the community. So even though it's called global, I think we focus a lot more on local issues and that has worked well for us. And, and I think we'll, we'll continue doing that is exposing them to doing things that they can see the impact right away by seeing our, our local partners, even the university, uh, seeing some value in the things that they're doing.
0: Thank you, Miguel. Uh, Can't wait for your fifth appearance. Uh, And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Money Talk, and we'll see you all next week.